The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is part of our Anzac Day special and features one of our truly iconic bands, the Deltones. We speak with the legendary bass man himself, Ian Peewee Wilson, and also with former Deltones lead singer, Cole Lothman. And now you've hit the beach and you're feeling mighty fine. You turn your boat around for the second time. You make it out the back. Swells are coming fast. The first ones are too small, and so you take the last. You gotta walk the plank, ride the hook, corner left and right, and keep it nice and tight. And now the time is drawing near. You're moving down the wall, now steady as she goes. You got your toes up on the nose, and now you're hanging by, hanging by, hanging by toes upon the Malibu. Let's stop. Here's Cole Lothanen remembering his time in Vietnam with the Deltones. I wouldn't say we had any near-miss experiences, although we travelled in open-air jeeps to, to go to the bases, to perform in the bases. So I can remember the drivers sort of saying, oh, look, you know, I'd, we'd ask them, you know, is it OK around here? And they'd say, oh, well, you see the Viet Cong are sort of around here sometimes, you know, but they might be here today, you know. <laughs> I think when you're young, you just, you don't, you know, it was only 22 or 23 or something, 22, I think. Um, I don't think you think about things like that, mortality, you know. You don't, nobody, you don't think about dying at 22. Yep. And so I just, I think you thought about it, but not like, you know, if you're an adult, you're older, you'd be going, oh, no, I don't think I want to go in an open Jeep. Can I go in a Pope mobile or something, <laughs> you know, something covered in, you know, okay, somebody fires a shot. So, yeah, and also in, in the evening, we're staying in the city in, Saigon uh, in the Myacord Hotel and all night you'd hear, you know, you know, sirens and, you know, things going on all night. So you couldn't sleep. So it was so all happening. you are in a war zone for sure. Oh, yeah. We were definitely near the war zone, yeah. Yep. And there must have been appreciative crowds. Yeah, they were. They were great. The troops were great. They, they really you know, loved the entertainment and uh, it was a great time. We did a whole lot of bases and before that we'd been to Hong Kong and um, Okinawa and um, Taiwan and different places doing gigs and then Vietnam was part of the tour that we did. But, yeah, no, it was a great time. It was great to, to great experience to do something like that. But it was, yeah, it was something that you'd sort of worry about more today if you had to go and go to Iraq or something, I don't think I'd want to go there, you know. Here's Pee Wee speaking with awesome Aussie songs producer Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. Australian Defence Force, and it was a, they, they, they sent us across there to do uh, free shows for the, um, for the troops. We went over, we were only over there for a week the first time and worked at the, um, and performed at the two um, R&R bases in Vietnam. Uh, Vung Tao and Bien Hoa, um, both of them off the back of trucks. Uh, but as I say, we're only there for a week. 
Uh, it was a sort of a, a whirlwind tour, and, and we were back within a week or so. But then, of course, we went back later on in a few years' time, and we stayed there for some months. When you guys first toured Vietnam in 1966, you're obviously young men yourself. You must have been very green when you went there. Well, it, you know, we were very naive, but we, we were sort of pretty grateful that we didn't get um, caught up in the ballot, you know, and, and, and sent over there like Normie Rowe to fight um, in the war. So we were blessed in that sense. So uh, we felt, it, uh, we felt um, very keen to get across there um, to do these shows for the, uh, for the troops. However, as you say, it, we were um, uh, pretty green behind the ears and we hadn't done a lot of shows, of course. I mean, overseas, it was our first major overseas trip apart from New Zealand. So it was, um, it was pretty exciting. And um, um, there's a, uh, I think there's a, a photograph that in my uh, scrapbook with, with us all getting a photograph taken at the airport, and there was a hell of a lot of us went across there. Um, I, I remember Dodd Lane and a whole lot of people um, went across there, Cold Joy, of course, and, and, and just about all the other lucky star, a hell of a lot of, uh, of the first waivers uh, were very, very happy and, and very keen to go across there. And, and it never occurred to us that we were going to be in any real danger because they just said to us, you're going to be working and, and performing um, at the uh, R&R centres, so we thought we wouldn't, uh, we, we wouldn't have any uh, sort of uh, any dangers at all. Uh, however, I, I remember we did some water skiing or something on one of the Benoit, I think it was on one of the beaches there at Benoit, and somebody said, um, you know, there's been some sniper shooting going on there. So we were, we were, the, the, the ski trip was very, very quick. We were out of there very, very fast and, um, and back up into our hooches. But it was it was an eye opener tour, and, and and it prepared us for the for the next trip, which went uh, over there, of course, in um, in 1969 for the second visit. Oh wow! You're water skiing, and someone's sniping you from the bushes. It's probably not going to give you the chance to relax too much, is it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, they said they, said they have pot shots. I, I'm, I'm sure that I think it was the Viet Cong, of course, that were that were doing the sniping, and but they they hadn't hit anybody. He, they told us they were bad shots, but they'd seen that the bullets hit the water and, uh, a few times. And um, and so, of course, it's, it's a moving target, so it wasn't easy to hit once you're up and, and running uh, and, and up on your skis. So, uh, But nevertheless, it was, uh, that was the only sort of um, inkling of real danger that we, that we felt, apart from, of course, talking to, um, to the troops, to the Australian troops, and, and, um, and listening to some of their tales was... Uh, was um, it was pretty daunting just listening to them, let alone um, going through what they went through there. And on this tour, you guys were based out of Da Nang, is that right? That's right. That was that was the second trip, Sheldon. Um, that was in, as I said before, in uh, in nineteen sixty nine, and we were based in Da Nang, right on the uh, close to the demilitarized zone, which you know was separating the North Vietnamese from the South. But you know, getting there was um, was was a trip in itself. We landed in, in Saigon. At Tonsonut Airport, and uh, we were taken to the um, to the hotel to stay overnight before we did the trip up to um, to Danang, uh, which was going to be our base. And um, we were up at the top of the hotel uh, in the beer in the beer garden in, in uh, Saigon, and um, chatting to uh, a couple of the uh, American uh, military guys because Bill Watson arranged this tour, 
and we on this particular tour in 1969, we stayed there for some months, as I mentioned. So we were under the um, we were under the uh, uh, under the wing of the of the Americans who were looking after us. Uh, Watson had connections there with the American bases, and so we were primarily there commercially doing shows for the Americans. But we also at that time also did some gratuitous shows for the Australians as well. But um, and, and for the Americans at some of the hospitals and bases. But otherwise, we were working what they had over there, which was a, a club circuit, um, as well as working off the back of, of, of wagons. However, getting back to that story, we are up the top of the Saigon uh, Hotel, and the guy said, uh, it's coming on dark now. He said, the war starts in about 15 or 20 minutes. And, uh, of course, we sort of had a bit of a laugh and thought he's talking about something that's happening elsewhere. However, we looked out from the... Was uh, from the top of the hotel there, and, and all of a sudden there was tracer bullets going, and there was searchlights going, and flares going up, and and he and he was right. The war started across the river, and he was telling us that um, it was such a strange war, and, and as everybody knows, there was no real front line in Vietnam. But he was saying that that waiter that you were just served our drinks there um, has probably knocked off now and um, gone to his uh, hooch and put on his black uniform, went across the river on the other side of, uh, of the river and um, took up his uh, role as um, a Viet Cong. And um, it was an astonishing opening day for us in, uh, in Vietnam on that second trip. We were just uh, uh, flabbergasted. Heading to a war zone, it must have been a surreal experience for the group. Well, it was, <laughs> it was certainly a new experience, uh, something like we've never, never had before. I might add, uh, uh, we, as I said earlier, we, we were pretty naive and weren't um, weren't au fait with. We didn't really understand what was going on in, in Vietnam, and and that first trip, we we didn't come back much the wiser, to be quite honest. And so we weren't, as I said, a lot better informed when we went on the second trip. But um, as I said, that first trip was was a week only, and so looking back on it, there was a bit of a blur. But the second trip, of course, was was uh, four months and um uh, uh, that was quite an experience in itself but um it was um really made a, a big impression on me the second trip more than the first simply because we got quite uh, more intimate with the with the military and um and what was going on in the war there and the politics of it and, and came away with a whole different outlook and a whole different view of of um th- that particular military um, exercise that the americans were trying to get through and, and as I said before, I'm so glad that we were so fortunate to be able to perform in that sort of circumstances and weren't there as a military personnel because it was a horrific war. And to be quite frank, I was glad to get out of there the second trip. I really wanted to get out. And as you know, we lost one of our performers over there. And so even though we didn't come to any heightened danger, the danger was there all the time that, that we were there. And, uh, you, you know, you, you could feel it in the air. It was, it, it was quite an experience. But as I said, I, I was glad to get out of there. And I'm assuming it's a sort of tour that you're not going to forget in too much of a hurry. It was quite an experience, let's put it that way. And, and one that, one that I'm, I'm grateful for, to be quite honest, because it did um, change my political views and, um, and, and, and gave me an insight into... Um, into the whole farce of war and uh, and um, and particularly uh, 
you know, the American political system. Because, as I said before, we worked mainly for the Americans. I think we only did about four or five shows in those months for the Australians. Uh, but but it, was, it was such a, a thrill to work for them and, and perform for them anyway and talk with them because we'd be, been sort of uh, on the, the American sort of club and, and uh, flying out and in and out of, uh, uh, of camps and so forth. So it was, um, it was uh, I'm damn glad we got out of there when we did, as safe as we did. So it sounds like there's a lot of entertainment going on there for the American troops. Oh, yes. There was a hell of a lot of entertainment was going on over there. And, you know, there was performers there from all over the world, from, uh, from America, of course, and from, from England and, and also from the Philippines and, and various other countries. So, and really quite strange because some of the shows we would do, we would do it at sometimes at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, which was very, very strange, time to do a show. But, uh, of course, these shows were um, troops that had just come in from being out on, uh, on patrol or whatever it was, and um, they uh, were going to be sleeping for the rest of the day, so they'd come in and have a drink and uh, watch the show. And they must have been a receptive crowd, with you guys giving them a, a little taste or a reminder of back home. Yes, indeed it was. I mean, the Americans are fantastic to work for, and I mean, particularly under those circumstances, um, when, when you consider that... Um, what they were going through, and um, but it was satisfying. The Americans are, are renowned, you know, really for for, for being uh, an educated audience. It was it wasn't unusual for them when we when we'd hit a, a big sort of major finishing chord on one of our songs that they would stand up almost at the second song, you know. And some of my low notes would you would get a response of, of applause, and and some of the high notes would. Get, they were a very much a educated audience and, and uh, very much into the shows. However, there were times when um, it was really quite strange. Because we were, uh, uh, at that time, it was early early days for the Deltones, our repertoire was pretty broad range. We were doing folk and rock and, and pop and, and novelty songs and uh, all sorts of uh, different genres. And um, if we... Uh, for the first two or three songs, if we uh, did some pop songs to open up with, the uh, the, the American, the coloured American guys would uh, you'd look down. It was very disheartening. They'd be playing cards. You know, there'd be half a dozen coloured guys, all half a dozen tables of coloured guys, all all playing cards, ignoring the show. Wouldn't wouldn't think of it. As soon as we rip into a Motown song, whoa, the cards thrown away, and up they'd get them into it. So it was, it was a mixed bag as far as the audience went in terms of response. However, they were very much into, into encores and, and I mean, there wasn't a show that, that we did that didn't get two or three encores. In fact, sometimes we'd, we'd run out of material and you start from, the, start from the top of the show again and you start do the opening song again. Um, that didn't seem to worry them at all. In fact, uh, uh, on the contrary, they, they'd throw money onto the stage, which was rather very, very strange, very strange. But um, our roadie would, uh, would run out between the songs and grab hold of the $20 and $50 and sometimes $100 bills and, and uh, we'd share it all out of the back of the stage until, uh, until Bill Watson, our manager, found out about it and uh, <laughs> wanted his cut. Uh, but uh, that, that happened just almost every show that they would, uh, uh, if they were really enthusiastic, they would uh, show their uh, appreciation by... Uh, throwing dollar bills and $10 and $20 bills onto the stage. Uh, I've never had that ever happen in this country. And did you guys do many hospital visits? Yes, we did. And 
and that was that was uh, very traumatic for us. And and it was a, a strange atmosphere. I remember distinctly uh, doing the shows. Uh, they would they would some of the, the hospitals would have a, an area that they would put the chairs out, and, and we would more or less because they never had a stage or anything. We would work on 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 the on the, either the grass or or uh, or in, in in the hall, but always working on a thing and to look out onto the audience to to maybe a hundred fifty maybe. Maybe wouldn't be many more than that. Um, maybe a lot less. Most of the time, it was it was less. However, they were, um, you know, to look out there and just see guys with, you know, patches over their eyes, bandages on their head. Every one of them was um, was shot up, and um, uh, it was, um, you know, obviously there wasn't a lot of uh, feedback coming back from these guys because they weren't well. But but they still showed their appreciation. Sometimes by either banging their, their crutches together, or and I meant the the, the walking crutches, of course, um, or they would find some way to bang something to uh, to show their appreciation. But uh, that was um, yeah, that was a pretty pretty uh, pretty emotional uh, sense that we had there. We'd always come away from there, you know, silent and a little stunned by by the whole thing, because it would bring home quite vividly just how horrible this this awful. War was it was just absolutely dreadful, but some of the experiences, of course, were pretty exciting. When I mean, we were flying around in, in C one twenty threes and Chinook helicopters, Iroquois helicopters, lots of flying. We did we flew just about to every gig, and um, I remember one example. They took us uh, on a chopper up on top of this uh, this mountain. It was a flat top mountain, and they were there was quite a few uh, guns. Uh, uh, artillery up the top there, howitzers and various other military, large guns anyway that were there. And um, I remember landing on the uh, on the pad there at the top of the mountain, and uh, there was there was a bit of blasting going on on one side of the of, of the uh, the pad and shooting out with these guns making a hell of war. Then we were allotted our um, our bunkers uh, in case there was a um, there was some incoming uh, shell fire, and then after that, the guy said, "Right, we're, we're going to start the show at um, at whatever time it was. I think it was one o'clock or something. Uh, so I'll, I'll stop the war at uh, five to one, and uh, or ten to one or whatever it was, and uh, and uh, we could put the show on at uh, at quarter past one when uh, when the boys have got off their uh, off their, uh, their their artillery and uh, and come in to uh, to do the show and." Uh, and, and so here we were on top of this mountain, overlooking uh, the valleys that were around this top of this mountain. And um, when we finished the show, um, the guy said, "Look," he said, "Why don't you hang around before you take off and go back to Danang? And uh, because there's some, uh, we're going to do some shelling over on this, uh, this uh, over the top of this valley." He said, "And it'll be quite a show because you'll have the spotter aircraft come in." Anyway, as it turned out, it was a show. It was fantastic because we saw the this, this light aircraft. Come in with the what they call spotter aircraft, drop their uh, their smoke, red smoke that was positioned along the thing, and these were these what what they thought were Vietnam uh, Viet Cong positions, uh, or, or uh, uh, which the Viet Cong were buried, and they saw some activity down there, and then down would come these F one eleven jets below our feet, uh, you know, below the mountain where we were, down swoop down into the valley, drop these uh, napalm bombs. And boy, oh boy! I mean, it was um, 
I mean, it wasn't as spectacular as uh, as New Year's Eve at, on Sydney Harbour, but which I've done many times. But uh, it was certainly uh, an experience to uh, to see, and uh, one that I uh, that uh, that's burned into my memory. And knowing the consequences of what these bombs could do, or what what would be taking place on the ground, that must have been a very confronting thing to to take in as well. Well, it is particularly with napalm. I mean, I. I I've taken an interest in the Vietnam War over the years after my visit there, and um, uh, I, it's sort of a, I really my impression at that time was, of course, that they were they were actually it was pretty scary. I thought they were they were actually uh, there was people possibly being killed down there and and uh, and maimed and burnt alive down there with these napalm uh, bombs, which were a horrific uh, weapon. Uh, but um, uh, the reality is, of course, that. They probably did very little damage. These, these, um, the Viet Cong, for example, were, were well into their tunnels. They were buried very deep into the ground. These things were, weren't weren't as effective. They looked spectacular, but they weren't as effective as one would imagine. But um, nevertheless, the, the thought was there at the time. As a matter of fact, uh, the military started to fire as well there, and um, that was uh, an experience. Just watching this, this this team with these huge guns firing off. Into, into where I don't know you couldn't you couldn't see where they were dropping because they were quite a few kilometres away, but um, the, the impression I got out of there, Sheldon, when I come out was that that the reason that you know the the reason that the the Americans were ineffective was that 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 for all of the military might that they had and they certainly had I mean I we were just while we were waiting for to catch a chopper to go to a show or something we would just be at the airport at Danang Airport watching these jets come and go and helicopters. The, the air was full of, 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 of aircraft, um, jets lining up and taking off with their fully loaded with their, um, with their rockets and their, their bombs. But for all of that uh, spectacular uh, artillery and, uh, and firepower, they, uh, uh, it, it, it didn't do the damage that they that you would expect it to do, you know. I mean, it, it, it was the Viet Cong and, and, and North Vietnamese Army, the feedback we were getting was that the North Vietnamese Army was a, a highly trained, um, a highly trained and very effective um, organisation, um, military, and the Viet Cong were, were very cunning. And, um, and because it was their country, uh, they, they were protecting their country where... Our impression was that the Americans, whether they be conscripts or whether they were regulars, couldn't wait to get out of there. They just wanted out. Nobody wanted to be there. But of course, the Vietnam Vietnamese wanted to be there. It was their home and they wanted to stay. And uh, so the attitudes were, were, were quite different. And we heard some interesting stories uh, uh, about the, um, uh, the American military in terms of um, how, how how ineffective they were, um, and um, and it, I think it was a, it was a disaster for both sides, of course. But but the Americans suffered something awful for for, uh, for what what would have what you know we know the the, the politics are um, are all out now. The secrets are all out, and everybody knows just what went on in Vietnam and and what came about there. It's all well documented, but. Um, even at that time, when we left, we we had a it was it wasn't um, 
you know, you had that feeling that uh, this was a lost war and it's been a lost war for a long time. And um, somehow or other, these poor, these uh, a lot of the mil- military guys, particularly the regular army guys and regular military guys, uh, uh, knew that that was a losing war. And uh, the, the reason they wanted to get out there, get go home, was because they didn't. Their heart wasn't in it, and uh, they wanted out of there. So, um, so there was that. There was that feeling over there that um, you know you weren't on the winning side necessarily. And back in Australia, have you ever met up with any of these troops that you performed to in Vietnam? Oh yes, 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 in, indeed. And for, for many years afterwards, you know, um, I mean, I can only imagine the sort of the the, the trauma that. Normie Rowe went through there, um, and I've spoken to Normie about it very briefly. But um, I, you know, he he would have. Uh, some people used to say to me, you know, oh, Normie's not the same bloke anymore. And I said, well, that, that's not surprising uh, because I've had uh, one particular guy in the surf club that I was really good friends with back in, in those early days who went across, and he's never been the same either. And the Vietnam vets that would come up to us at shows and say, I saw you at Vung Tau, I saw you at Benoit, I saw you in Danning, and I just want to thank you. And and I, it would bring me to, honestly, it would bring me to tears because I, I would say to them, well, you thanking me? My God, you know, because, because most of them were conscripts. Um, and uh, I, I, I would, it, would, it, would, it, would, it would disturb me anyway. I would say to them, look, you know, this is, thank me, it was... It wasn't a pleasure being there, but but it was the least I could do, uh, or the least the Deltans could do, and 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 my fellow entertainers is go across there and and, and give you guys a little bit of, of relief from that from the horrors of uh, of of the war, and um, uh, you know I have nothing but utmost admiration for them, and what they suffered when they came home was was inexcusable. It was it's just horrible, but war's horrible. Any way you look at it, there's, there's, there's nothing good about it at all. But in those cases, I did have some chats with um, some of the vets when they come back. But but of course now they're they're all getting into my age now, and a lot of them have you know suffered something awful with their post uh, post war uh, uh, trauma. And so it's it, the whole the whole thing. It's, it's, it's the whole affair was a, a sad affair, and uh, not something that um, that anybody should be proud of. It, it was. Uh, it was a sad affair. Uh, however, it's all gone. It's history now. And um, for, for those that, that, that fought over there, um, I have nothing but the, the utmost admiration for it, uh, whether they be conscripts or, or regulars. And really, when it simply boils down to it, war is just a dirty thing, isn't it? Yes, it, it, it certainly is. I might add that that um, that there was some times over in, in Vietnam that were that I that I remember that were. were Quite interesting because it was the first time that I had any sort of um, uh, what do you call uh, uh, relationship with, um, with, uh, with with the American with the coloured Americans in particular, and I just just I just love them. I, uh, just their whole attitude towards the war, their whole attitude towards music. It, it, there were some light-hearted moments over there that were that, that, that are memorable. Uh, I mean. You know, there was a lot of drugs drugs going on over there, as you'd be aware. Everybody's aware of it now. There was, the, the downside, of course, was, was a lot of the, the Americans in particular. I, I, I don't think this was 
was ever an issue with the Australians, certainly not that, that I'm not aware of anyway, but certainly with the Americans, which we spent most of our time with. We didn't spend a lot of time with the Australian troops. We spent most of our time with the American troops. However, the drugs were a big problem. I wasn't au fait or aware that heroin was a problem, but marijuana was everywhere. Cannabis was, I mean, outside the front of our hotel at Da Nang, there was a, a street vendor there, a Vietnamese street vendor, that was selling anything all from the, from the, uh, the American stores, the PX stores, you know, the, all sorts of tin food and, and uh, soft drinks, Coca-Cola and stuff, but also were, were ready-rolled joints. So if you weren't a, a smoker of marijuana before you went there, it wouldn't take long before you would be, uh, would be tempted. Um, and so there were some really quite some fun times over there with, uh, with some of the troops. Um, after the show, and strangely enough, we got um, we got to know uh, some of the uh, CIA guys, young guys in the CIA. Uh, uh, one of the th- interesting things about that was that that if 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 we didn't have um, uh, we had a, a girl a singer with us, um, and um, she uh, she was our ticket to. Um, uh, to the the, the the sort of the post um, show parties. Now these parties were confined basically to to the CIA guys who who were stationed in Darling uh, because they had sort of carte blanche after the curfew, and they would take us back to their uh, to their hooch and just just to be around. They were terribly um, terribly polite to uh, to our singer to our girl singer and um, Gail, and they were just so happy just to talk uh, talk with her. They didn't pay a lot of attention to us. But what was interesting was they all had these incredible sound systems and all their tents and they had wonderful sound systems and and, uh, and they re- really loved their music. Uh, and so it was um, some interesting times uh, with them. And um, we drank a lot of booze and got a lot of hangovers over there as well. So um, it wasn't all horror. It was um, There were some quite lighthearted moments over there. And, uh, and uh, as I say... The Americans had a, uh, 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 quite, quite a different style of, of, of just about everything, They're quite distinctive. Um, uh, and, and a lot of that uh, American uh, uh, prejudice was there and uh, racism was there. Uh, but we were naive and uh, we weren't terribly, uh, terribly uh, affected by it. Uh, we just took it for, uh, for granted. So... Um, but as I say, it, 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 there were some uh, lighter moments over there. And with the Deltones being the sort of band that you guys were, a lot of your heroes would have been black musicians, wouldn't they? So you guys must have been in your element. Yeah, yeah, we were, uh, and they were, they were very distinctive in their in their attitude towards music. And um, as I mentioned before, they they just loved it. If we would do Motown, and, and we would we would adjust our shows, you know, to, to, to suit what we saw was predominantly um, whether they were white or whether they were coloured. And um, we, we, would, uh, we would pick our songs uh, accordingly and uh, if there were predominantly a black audience, we would, uh, we would make sure we, we'd put in all the Motown stuff, which was quite popular at the time, or anything that resembled um, uh, that they, they could relate to. And, um, and, and they were overly enthusiastic. Um, and we had opportunities, of course, to work at, at other American bases in the Philippines, at, at 
on some of the major bases like Clark Base and Subic Bay, these big American bases on that uh, on that same tour, and um, and uh, we were working and, and performing at the same show as as, as such such wonderful musicians as uh, Duke Ellington had his band there at that one stage. Um, there was quite a few of the Americans were. Uh, uh, that we, we had the opportunity to, to go and see um, uh, while, while we were at these other bases. We didn't see them many of them in Vietnam. Uh, there was the, the superstars, of course, the Bob Hopes and those guys that had, had that tradition of going across working for the troops in the Second World War. Uh, there wasn't a lot of that went on in Vietnam, but um, um, most of the uh, performers over there that, that we came across over there weren't international uh, caliber uh, uh, performers, you know. Um, they were mainly uh, acts similar to ourselves. A lot of the bands over there, of course, resided there for uh, for ages. Uh, would stay there for a year or two and uh, and uh, get quite entrenched in the culture of uh, of that uh, of the military culture and uh, stay there for ages. But to be quite honest, I, I was uh, quite pleased to uh, to get out of Vietnam. Yeah, no one could really blame you for that, could they? Thanks so much for your time, Pee-wee. I really appreciate speaking to you, mate. Um, and I'm sure you put a lot of smiles on a lot of faces over there. So uh, thank you very much, mate. I really appreciate it. Yeah, th- thanks, you And yeah, I, I think one of, the, one of the highlights or lowlights of my life, whatever way you look at it, um, but it certainly made a, a major impression on me and, um, and it, it, it was unforgettable. For more on the Deltones, take a listen to episode 11 of Awesome Aussie Songs. We take a look at the early part of the Deltones' career and how they overcame Australia's first rock and roll tragedy with the death of their original lead singer, Noel Weidenberg. We'll finish this episode with one of the Deltones' songs about their early days, Billy's Rock and Roll. to be done They took a little song and played it to the world Didn't stop till it was number one They called it Rock, rock and roll music A new way to sing in the blues It's got a beat that makes you tap your feet Can't fight across your shoulder loose Y'all know what I'm talking about It's called Billy Rock and roll The man said it was evil Some said it wouldn't last But while they had their backs turned It got out and crept on past Time moved on and they did their best To call it by another name Like a Motown twist Soul and stuff, they're all different Was their claim Hard rock, soft rock, country rock Don't be silly It's Billy's rock and roll You take a drum beat like a heartbeat All join in Bass man, follow the drum man all join in. Add a little guitar picking. 
all join in Anybody there just standing about All join in Molly, you've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, hit it, girl. Just stop and stare and shout it 